Thank you, Darren and Dawn. God certainly is worthy of our praise. Let me encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me once again to Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Matthew 2. While you're turning, get you thinking a little bit. We are at the end of summer, kind of settling into fall routine, school routine. Um, so I would assume for many, travel is kind of behind us. Um, but I wonder what kind of traveler you are. Lots of different personalities represented in the room. I'm sure there are some who are the uh, sightseeing adventure seekers, uh, where you like to get out there, you like to see everything, you like to do everything, you like to experience everything, um, and the sense of adventure just calls your name. And I am sure there are others who are more reluctant in their travel. You're like, yep, I go, I do, I'll take it easy, but it's stressful for me. And, you know, I'll do it. Um, and I would guess there's probably a third group who are like the non-existent travelers who's like, I don't do that. I like to stay at home. Okay. Uh, I'm sure that's the case as we look. And maybe there's other categories I haven't thought of. Um, maybe more interestingly, I wonder what kind of packer you are. For some of you, that's, that's why I don't travel. <laughs> okay. Um, because I think there are probably some in the room who's like, oh, you know what? We got vacation in three weeks. I better get my suitcase out. Okay, that's not me. Um, but some of you probably are wired that way to start making a list, checking it twice, because you're just going on vacation. Okay, And you've got the suitcase out and starting to accumulate things along the way. Uh, while that is not me, I was very glad when our kids were younger that that was my wife, uh, because we would go and we'd have what we needed. Um, I think there's probably another group, I've seen these people back when I was youth pastor, we go on youth retreat, there are the people who like, just in case pack, and their suitcases like bursting at the steams, they're the people who are apologizing to the airline attendant as they check their bags in, going, I know it's 70 pounds, okay, and I know I'm only gone for three days, okay, um, but you know, just in case, I got to make sure I pack it, and then there are the last minute people. I do tend to fall into that one. It's like, oh, we're leaving today? I guess I better find my suitcase. And uh, we're going to make sure that everything we think we need goes in there when we pack last minute. I was thinking about that as we come to Matthew 2. It's a familiar text. And you're like, how in the world are we talking about traveling and vacation and packing? Uh, because I want you to think about what takes place for Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus in Matthew chapter 2, because it isn't just a matter of going on a trip for vacation, certainly not the case. Um, it isn't the matter of travel with modern convenience. It isn't the matter of being gone for a short time. They are going to receive a message, and the same night in which they receive the message, relocate in life in a foreign country. Don't lose sight of that, because again, this text is one we revisit over and over and over again at Christmas time, and we think about, wow, the wise men came to worship Joseph and Mary, and we kind of forget about the next section, and the, you know, we know that it's deeply grievous in some of what takes place, and maybe that's part of the reason we don't stop to think about what's going on at the end of chapter 2, but as God works in this text, Joseph and Mary leave Bethlehem. I mean, just think about how they got to Bethlehem, right? I mean, just how they got to Bethlehem and had a child in Bethlehem. And now, 
overnight, they're going to Egypt. It's not like travel in our day. It's not like, you know what, Google Translate, how do I deal with this? Right? And yet, that is what God has for Joseph and Mary as new parents in this very young stage of life. As we work through the text, I hope we marvel at God's grace to us in Jesus coming to this earth. To once again realize the humility and the difficulty of his incarnation. And to say, God, thank you. I want to praise your name. But I hope you will also find challenge and help to think about how God works in this and to realize God's character means that he works this way in our lives as well. Our circumstances looking very, very different, um, but God working in our lives as well. If you remember with me last week as we got into chapter 2, we opened the chapter with this worshipful inquiry from the wise men where uh, they come to Jerusalem, particularly to Herod, and they're like, where is he that is born king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east. We've come to worship him. And for them, this is an exciting thing. And for Herod, this is terrifying. King of the Jews, Herod sees himself as king of the Jews. Born king of the Jews, well, Herod's not been born a Jew, he's an Idumean, he's been appointed by Rome, and now he's got a threat in light of this worshipful inquiry, and that's why we looked at verse 3 and saw his fearful insecurity. He's troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When you look through verses 4 through 6, we see the biblical identity of the place where this king is to be born, this Messiah is uh, the religious leaders go to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and find out that it's in this rather insignificant town, Bethlehem, that the Messiah, the Deliverer, the King of the Jews is going to be born. And in light of that, Herod sends the wise men out in verses 7 and 8 with this deceitful impiety to go, go and find him, and when you do, come back and tell me so that I can worship him as well. And we already read in the scripture reading, but we'll walk through it this morning to realize that is not all, at all the disposition of Herod's heart. He has no interest in worshiping Jesus as the Messiah, as the deliverer. He simply feigns interest here in verses 7 and 8. But don't forget where we landed last week in verses 9 through 11, where we see the rightful glory, the rightful worship, if you will, of Jesus, this Messiah. Their worship is joyful. They see the star in the east, and they rejoice with exceeding great joy. That still challenges me to think about when is it that I come before God and think about what God has done, and it is rejoicing with exceeding great joy. It's like, if I can get to joy, we're good, okay? But they've been directed there. They worship, their worship was joyful. Their worship was humble or reverential. It tells us here that they fell down. And don't, like, because we wonderfully do view this with familiar eyes, that is a good thing. That is a blessing. But don't also miss the fact that here is this young child, and they're falling down before this young child so seemingly counterintuitive, but recognizing that God has been made flesh. Emmanuel, God is truly with them, with us. 
And then finally, at the end of verse 11, their worship was sacrificial. They give these incredible gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So we come to verse 12, we find them leaving and going about things a different way. And as we work our way through verses 12 to 23, there are two predominant thoughts or principles that I want to set in front of us this morning that I believe are accurately represent how God is working in the text, but also should call to mind how God works in my life and in yours as well. The first thought, the first principle I want to put in front of us is that God sovereignly protects. God sovereignly protects. Um, maybe it stood out to you again as we were working through the scripture reading, but this passage reminds us we don't live in a perfect world. Even when Jesus is present on the earth, even in the circumstances around Jesus, it is deeply flawed by sin. There are parts of the text here that are horrifically evil. And yet, I believe overarching all of that, you can see this thought that God sovereignly protects. If that's true, and obviously I believe that it is, I think we'll see it in the text, that means he's worthy of your trust and he's worthy of your worship. So as you walk through the details of your life, again, looking very differently than the text of Matthew 2, praise the Lord, you can go, God, in my life, I do believe that you sovereignly protect. So we look at this idea that God sovereignly protects coming to verse 12. Notice first, he protects through the omniscient redirection of the wise men. He protects through the omniscient redirection of the wise men. Verse 12 says, and being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their country, own country another way. God is the one who brought these wise men to Herod. Don't forget that. Like, it, it's fascinating to me how God works in this text in that God brings them to Herod. Herod tells them, come back. And God says, nope, don't go that way. Okay? Almost with a sense of sovereignty and irony, he redirects them not to go back to Herod in order to protect Jesus himself. And while we do know the rest of the story, keep in mind the information here simply tells them what to do, not why. Like, we can jump ahead and go, oh, I know why. But here, as we read what the wise men are told to do, it says God told them in the dream not to return to Herod. So they didn't. Like, later on, when God speaks to Joseph through the angel in a dream, God is going to explain to Joseph, here's why you need to do what you do. But here, as, God, as the text of Scripture is given to us, the wise men are simply told, go home another way, and they follow God's instruction because God knows all. You know, there are points where we are on the path of life, and God is directing us, God is leading us, and it's like, I don't know how to make sense of all of this. All I can do is see enough light to take the next step and go, God, right now, I don't know why. I want to know why, but you don't owe me a why. So God, I'm just going to obey you. I'm going to follow the truth of your word. I'm going to trust that this works, even though my flesh wants to do something different, even though I find obedience to be difficult, even though I'm struggling to trust, God, I will. I'm just going to take the next step. God is omniscient. He is all wise, and he will sovereignly protect us if we'll but follow 
him. God is always worthy of our trust and obedience. Again, there are times, again, we'll see it in the text, there are times where God does give explanation along with instruction. He does that for Joseph. And then there are times where God says, here's the instruction, but there is no explanation. Here's what you must do. And if God is sovereign, that's okay. God doesn't owe me answers and explanations of everything. Like, so often for us today, particularly the way we're wired in our modern culture, someone gives you an instruction, you're like, yeah, but why? Like, someone comes to ask you to do something at work, and you're like, yeah, but like, like why? And it's almost like, we have to have a reason, we have to have an explanation, and some of that can be a good thing. But when it comes to God's working in our lives, when it comes to believing Him and obeying His Word, we don't always need a why from God. He is sovereign, and in His sovereignty, He protects. God sovereignly protects first through the omniscient redirection of the wise men, second through the prophetic revelation to Joseph. Through the prophetic revelation to Joseph in verses 13 to 15. We're switching groups here, if you will, from the wise men going, okay, they're sent home a different way. Now let's deal with Joseph and Mary and Jesus. As we look at the prophetic revelation to Joseph, consider God's protection in verses 13 and 14. It says, When they departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. With a sense of immediacy, the wise men have left within the text, and then we're almost told, and it's like, and next, God speaks to Joseph again through a dream using the angel of the Lord. And in this case, God gives them both what to do, how long to do it, and why. And again, God doesn't owe Joseph those answers, but he gives it. It's like, think about God speaking to Abraham in Genesis 12. Get up, go to a land that I will show thee, and I will make thee a great nation through thee, all nations of the earth will be blessed, like Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Well, where, Lord? He says, the one that I'll show you. Well, how long am I going to be there? None of those details are given, and Abraham went, and Hebrews 11 says, not knowing whither he went. Okay? Here, Joseph's being taken to Egypt. I mean, like, imagine in your mind, again, if we go back to that opening idea of what kind of traveler you are, if I said, hey, guys, um, when you get home this afternoon, I need you to pack, and when we come back for church tonight, we're leaving on a trip. Bring your passport. Like, all we know is you're leaving the country. You're like, well, where are we going? Like, I'm not telling you. Like, should I pack warm or should I pack light? Just pack. How long are we going to be gone? I don't know. Okay? They're headed to Egypt. This is a huge step of faith, and yet God is absolutely worthy because he is sovereignly protecting them, and he explains the reason within the text. Take the child. Notice that Jesus is not described as Joseph's son here, even though we've looked at multiple texts where people will assume this is Joseph's son. Take the child and his mother and go to Egypt until I tell you to move again, because here's the reason. Herod is going to try to kill this child. Again, I don't know that we could do this, but we've talked about it on Wednesday nights particularly. Read imaginatively, right? Imagine hearing those words. Imagine hearing those words in light of all that they've been through to get to that point. 
They've discovered Mary's with child. The angels have explained it. People around them don't understand it. They've gone to Bethlehem. They've had this child, okay? And now they're being told after these wise men have come, they've worshiped like, wow, this is different. There's these incredible gifts. And they're saying, get to Egypt now. Herod's going to try to kill them. Imagine the fear, the worry, the idea, I mean, even the unthinkable idea that someone is pursuing a young child to and under. Then you think about Herod's history, right? Remember we talked about this last week, this is Herod the Great. He killed two of his own sons, later killed a third. He killed his wife because he was jealous. This is the man that is now pursuing this young child. Yet God is working to protect his son. I find it interesting. I find it instructive, even though we've talked about it before. There's not a lot of detail about Joseph. Like, once you get past Matthew 2 here, when are we going to talk about Joseph again? Not much. But here's what you know about Joseph. God speaks and Joseph obeys. God speaks and Joseph obeys. Like even in just that very simple example, like it would be really good for us if the testimony of our life was God spoke and I obeyed. God spoke and you obeyed. As we continue walking through the text, we'll see that in light of this threat, God protects and good wins. You know, even when the kings of this earth with all of their authority seek to supplant God's plan, they will not win. This evening, we'll take a little aside and go to a psalm that speaks to that as well. Within the prophetic revelation that we're looking at, we're saying God sovereignly protects uh, through this prophetic revelation of Joseph. First, we said, let's look at that protection. But as we come to verse 15, consider secondly with me God's power. Not just his protection, but his power. Verse 15 tells us, and was there. So Joseph went and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of by the, of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Through the prophet Hosea, God had used the historical event of the Exodus, whereby God brought his people Israel out of Egypt to point to a future event through Hosea to point to a future event of deliverance in which his son would also come out of Egypt. Let's go back and look. Here's how God worked and provided deliverance back then. But in the sending of his son, God will bring his own son out of Egypt as well. In Matthew 2, the Spirit of God through Matthew is telling us God kept his word. I don't, I, I don't want us to take that for granted because uh, as we walk through life and say, okay, I'm, I'm supposed to grab this thought for today, God sovereignly protects, you do realize if you follow his word, God keeps his word. God does follow through on his end, if you will. Like you think about the admonition in Hebrews that we talk about over and over, Hebrews 10, 23, that calls us to be faithful, to hold fast to what he's given to us. And what's the reasoning there in Hebrews 10? For he is faithful that promised. God's always reliable. We don't have to wonder if he's going to come through. Like Joseph does not need to be concerned, although we would understand it from a human level, totally understand it. Joseph doesn't need to be under concern. God, if I go to Egypt, is it going to be okay? God will take care of him. God will take care of you. 
And here, God's power is highlighted in saying this prophecy that was given hundreds of years before, okay, hundreds of years before, God has fulfilled. He's kept his word in directing Joseph to go down to Egypt. And again, we'll see this as we keep working our way through the text, but we might as well introduce the thought now. This is not like us saying, hey, um, go take a trip to Illinois. Like in our modern world, this kind of travel is much more common, much more normal. And so for them here to go, go to Egypt, and then he's going to bring him out of Egypt. And like by the time Jesus is just a young boy, he's done a lot more travel and lived a lot more places than the average person. Okay? Many in the room are like, you know what, like for me, I was born and raised in Illinois until I turned 22, and I've lived in Pennsylvania for the rest of my time. Like, Jesus has me beat by the time he's three, okay? He's going to be in Bethlehem, and then, Nazareth, or, uh, then Egypt, and then Nazareth. Very unique for that time frame and that day. God sovereignly protects. First, through the omniscient redirection of the wise men. Second, through the prophetic revelation of Joseph. And third, during the sinful rebellion of Herod. During the sinful rebellion of Herod. What takes place next in verse 16 is unconscionable. Unconscionable. It's grievous. It's horrific. We are reminded of the pain and agony of living in a fallen world. Verse 16 says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. The text should serve here for us as a sobering reminder that we are in a spiritual battle all the time. That from the time where sin was introduced in this world, Genesis 3, in the garden, and even prior to that with Satan, there has been a battle going on between good and evil. We can read a text like this and go, well, why wouldn't God stop that? And again, we have to remind ourselves, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his thoughts higher than my thoughts and his ways higher than my ways. We have to remind ourselves of that. Because at the same time, if it's like, you know what? God just said at the outset, I'm just going to make a world and it's never going to have free will. It's never going to choose to sin. God would be no better than a computer programmer who makes no mistakes. You know what? He programmed it. He punched it in. It just functions like a robot. It does exactly what the command data says. Okay? Some parents occasionally wish that their parenting worked like that. Okay? So it's like, you know what? If I can just punch in the right codes, feed the right food, it's all good. They always do exactly what I want. But you know what? It is very meaningful to a parent, and as we try to make the jump, it's far more meaningful to God. When someone who has a free, independent will says, I choose. I choose to love. I choose to obey. I mean, think about it in a friendship or maybe a marriage relationship. If it was just a programmed response, good morning. I love you. I love you too. And it all just worked by program. That's meaningful, isn't it? But when someone says, no, I choose you. I love you. I want to honor you. That's incredible. And God created man with a, a will. 
Now, God is still sovereign. It doesn't deny his sovereignty at all. But man with his will says, I think I'm going to try something else. I think God might be holding out on me. And the world has been plunged into sin and death by sin. And Satan continues to deceive and to destroy. And so we're reminded of the incredible pain and agony of sin as Herod goes out and seeking to make sure that he has no rivals, has children under the age of two put to death. Because his self-centeredness, his sinfulness is that deep. And it's into that dark of a world that God chose to send his son. And not only chose to send him, but demonstrates his absolute ability to protect him. To make sure that his life will not be taken. Again, unrestrained sin is unbelievably devastating not the primary thought of our text, but I would just encourage you to keep in mind, you are in a spiritual battle in your life. Whether you see it or not, it is happening. And unrestrained sin in your life is unbelievably devastating. It is in my life. Sin always seeks to destroy. Again, God here in the text shows that in the midst of that sinfulness, he works to mercifully save. He sovereignly seeks to protect. God knew this day would come. In fact, as we look at the way that the text unfolds, we're going to realize that it was prophetically foretold. It was prophetically foretold that there would be this time where there would be weeping and um, this loud lamentation in Ramah. Verse 17 says, Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy or Jeremiah the prophet, saying in Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation, weeping, great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children that is an allusion to Genesis 35, 19, where she was buried on the way to Bethlehem, would not be comforted because they are not. So, you know, Jeremiah actually foretold this, and the text where Jeremiah foretells this is Jeremiah 31. What's fascinating to me about that is, you know, Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. He is foretelling Judah or he's telling Judah, you're going into captivity, okay? And as you read through the book of Jeremiah, you begin to realize the horror of captivity as he's unpacking it. And yet in the midst of that, it, the weeping prophet telling about this incredibly horrific judgment of captivity upon God's people, Jeremiah gives hope. We could give you the quiz, make sure everybody's staying awake on Sunday morning, right? Where's that new covenant in Jeremiah? Oh, it's in Jeremiah 31 through Jeremiah 34. In the midst of the devastation of captivity, God says, but there's going to come a day where I'm going to give you a new heart and you're not going to have to tell people to know me because all men will know me. People's sins and iniquities, I will remember them no more. God says, there is coming a day where there will be hope, where sins will be forgiven, they'll be canceled out. I will not hold them against you because they will be paid for. It's in the midst of that hope in Jeremiah 31 where God says, but there is this time where in Ramah, there's going to be loud lamentation. There's going to be weeping. Because in providing the hope of the new covenant, God becomes man. Jesus comes to this earth. And there, because of sin, there is one who's like, I will kill him. I will see him put to death. But God sovereignly protects Will Jesus be put to death? 
trick question, is it not? Maybe if I ask you, will Jesus die? The answer is yes, but Jesus will not be put to death. I think of the words in John 12 where Jesus makes it very clear, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down myself. Yes, Jesus died for our sins, but not because someone took his life. Herod couldn't get him. And if God had so willed, Pilate wouldn't get him. But Jesus laid his life down for us. You see, God sovereignly protects, even in the midst of the sinful rebellion of this world. Our second principle for today's second thought is to realize not only does God sovereignly protect, but God providentially directs. God providentially directs in verses 19 to 23. This thought overlaps with what we've seen already in verses 12 through 17. We could see it there as well. But let me remind you of what we mean when we speak of God's providence. We're speaking of his loving direction and protection over all that he has made to bring it to his end. In other words, God cares, he loves, and because he loves, he protects, and he guides so that his purposes will be accomplished. He has that kind of caring, that kind of loving over his world. We see God's providence on display here for Joseph, for Mary, and certainly for his son, Jesus Christ. But I would also just remind you that God loves you if you are his child, and God providentially works in your life and mine as well. Like God is working to lovingly protect, and there is nothing that enters my life or yours that does not come through his good hand. It does not mean that it will always be easy. It does not mean that it will always be desirable. It certainly, in light of the text in front of us, does not mean that we will always be given all the details. But I believe you can look at a text like this and see that God sovereignly protects, and in our lives, God providentially directs. Two simple thoughts here as we near the end of our time together this morning. First, God providentially directs at the right time. Verses 19 to 21, but when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph of Egypt, in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. The right time, Herod's gone, the threat is gone. God now says, okay, now it's time to go. I've kept you here long enough. And he moves him on. Now, we'll also note that there's a sense of irony in the short words of chapter 2, where in chapter 2, Herod has already tried to kill Jesus, and yet Jesus outlasts Herod. The text makes that very clear. Now Herod the Great is dead, Jesus is still there, and Joseph is directed to go back to Israel because it is now safe. Consistent with Joseph's practice, we've already seen it now, this is the third time. God speaks, Joseph obeys. Verse 21, he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Now, as, as, you, as the text continues to go, you're going to be reminded, Joseph's human. Joseph is human. Like, we're going back to Israel. He's going to find out, there's this guy, Archelaus. He's Herod's son. In other words, he's known as Herod Archelaus. Are we sure this is good? Like, can you identify with that as you sometimes walk with God and you're like, God, I know that I'm supposed to, but are you sure? God, if if I really act with integrity at work, 
That God, if I, if I really stand for the truth, God, if I really call sin, sin because of what your word says, God, if I really forgive in my relationship to this person, God, if I really handle my marriage this way, God, if I really parent this way, God, are you sure? You can trust God in following his word. At times we can question. At times we can get impatient waiting for God to lead. But his instruction in his timing is always best. Again, I just ask you, when God convicts in your life or prompts in your life, how do you respond? Do you kind of ignore it? Do you push it aside? Yeah, I probably should think about that maybe later. I mean, like today, it's so easy when God convicts us or prompts us to do something like where confession and repentance is needed or obedience is needed or just extending love and kindness to another person is needed. It's very easy for us today to just pull out our phone and forget. Like there's so much noise in life that as the Spirit of God works, there's that still small voice. It's there and we're gone. Instead of saying, no, God, that's true. That's where I need to grow. That's where I need to repent. That's what I need to believe. That's how I need to serve. That's how I need to love. God here gives Joseph instruction. It's very simple for Joseph. Okay, we move from Bethlehem to Egypt. It's time to go back to Israel. God speaks. Joseph obeys. God providentially directs first at the right time, second to the right place. To the right place. Verse 22 into the beginning of verse 23 says, When he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. I love that God has included that detail for us. Like, again, we believe every word of Scripture is inspired. This doesn't have to be there. Like For some of us, if we were giving like our own life story, we'd skip that part. God said it and I obeyed. And the text leaves us with the idea like, God said this to Joseph. He's like, okay, I'm going. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Herod Archelaus? In the place of his father? And he fears. He's worried, and yet God comforts in the midst of that. He providentially directs. So God, again, speaks to Joseph through a dream. And again, while the nature of how God interacts with us is different today, can I just remind us, God has given us full revelation. God himself, this is something, yeah, well, Joseph got to see it in a dream. Well, you know what? Joseph didn't have the indwelling spirit of God. Take your choice, God speaking occasionally through the dream or God indwelling you through his spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God put his spirit in you and he's given you his word, right? And so God can guide us to think rightly, to know what to do. And so we read here, at least for Joseph, he was warned of God in dreams, so he turned aside hither into the parts of, aside into the parts of Galilee and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth. For Joseph, as a result of God's guidance, he and Jesus and Mary now find themselves in the third place within these early years of Jesus' life. Bethlehem, Egypt, Nazareth of Galilee. And again, all of those things, even as the text continues to unfold, only serve to highlight the uniqueness of Jesus' identity. 
Like, if we just asked in the room, we won't do it now, but if we just asked in the room, how many of you have lived in a foreign country, it would all of a sudden narrow the number of people dramatically. I don't really know, but I'm going to guess that less than 10% of the people in here have actually lived in a foreign country for an extended period of time. Like most of us are like, yep, been to the U.S., okay? Particularly in this area. Like, I, I learned that pretty quickly moving to Chester County, Pennsylvania. Like, I've been born here. I've lived here. I'm going to die here. There's someone who used to be a part of our church, now with the Lord. They're like, I've never lived more than five miles from Chester County Hospital. Like, wow, it's a little different out here. Like, I grew up in the Midwest. People go everywhere, Okay? For Jesus, it's very easy to go, you know what, this guy's unique. And later on, like in John 8, they're going to be questioning, like, can this really be the Messiah? Because isn't this the guy who came from Galilee and nothing good comes from Galilee? No, you're wrong. He did come from Bethlehem too. He met Micah chapter 5. And he, so he did come from Bethlehem. And he also meets Hosea 11 because he did go to Egypt and as the other prophets have told, and that's where the text goes next, there's uh, this time where he's in Nazareth. He'll be called a Nazarene. We've been looking at the idea that God providentially directs. We've said at the right time, to the right place, and third, we can say for his purposes. Because verse 23 reminds us again that in giving these details, it was fulfilled that which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. This one is unique at the end of Matthew 2 and verse 23. And that it's the only time Matthew speaks of the prophets, plural, and seems to be making an amalgamation of prophetic quotes. And so you start looking at cross-references, and it's like, so is he talking about Isaiah 11? Is he talking about Isaiah 52? Is he talking about one of these texts in the Psalms? And it could be all of the above, because he's saying, through the prophets, we realize that this one was to be called a Nazarene. That's why he's now in Galilee. The answer is yes. God has brought him. God has kept his word. God has fulfilled his purposes through the revelation from multiple prophets. It's also ironic because even one of Jesus' own followers, this is John 1, I think like verse 46 or so, uh, Nathaniel is being called to be one of the disciples of Jesus. And it's like, so can anything good come from Nazareth? Yes. Yes. Something good. Someone good can come from Nazareth. Even though it's a place of relative obscurity, biblical insignificance, to know God is bringing his son there in his providence, in his leading. So we prepare to leave the text for today. I hope you're reminded that you and I live in a deeply flawed, sin-cursed, pain-filled world. Times we're very readily aware of that. And then there are other times where we actually overlook the gravity of sin and its battle and destruction in our own lives. Don't do that. Recognize the battle and turn to our deliverer. Same time, while we live in a deeply flawed, sin-cursed, painful world, realize God sovereignly protects his own. God sovereignly protects his own. It's clear in the life of the wise men, it's clear in the life of Joseph and Mary and Jesus. We could look at many other biblical characters as well, but don't write off that it's true in your life. God sovereignly protects his own. And then secondly, God providentially directs his own. He leads. 
We, we watch as he moves Joseph and Mary and Jesus from place to place at the exact right time to a, the right place, understanding even where the fears of Joseph were, and he does it for his purposes, fulfilling prophecy at the same time. God works in our lives to providentially direct as well. We've talked about it before. I hope you can at points look back over God's working in your life historically and be like, you know, I would have never written my story that way. I would have preferred that it was like all good. There were no conflicts. There were no valleys. There were no problems. There was no pain. There were no changes. But you know what? As I look at how God's written my story, it's clear. God providentially directs. He is good. He is wise. And as a result, he deserves glory. As we consider these thoughts, we live in this sin-cursed world. God does sovereignly protect. God does providentially direct. Realize this is all taking place, explaining his mission to provide salvation from sin. The context of Matthew is the gospel. It's good news. To go, God has sent his son. He is Jesus, meaning the Lord saves. He's on a mission to save people for his glory. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use your word and the thoughts that we've considered from it today to strengthen faith among each Christian here today. That regardless of whether life is going well or is difficult or is uncertain, that we would rest in your sovereign protection of us and at the same time seek to be submissive to your providential direction of us, going where you want us to go, doing what you want us to do so that you are glorified. Lord, I thank you for the work that you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.